changing ideas listeners i'm avery miles and i'm the producer of this show we're going to start bringing you bonus episodes to give you more context on the topics we cover and a chance to tune into some highlights from the show today we're taking a look back at some moments that stood out this past year first talib talked with icon co-founder and ceo jason ballard about his company's 3d printers that build houses It was fascinating to hear how this kind of technology will work on the moon and then how it can also help address the housing crisis back here on Earth. So here's the most exciting part now, as if it wasn't exciting and and big thinking enough. You're looking into off-world construction systems, which is essentially printing in in space, right, on other planets. So... (laughs) How did the partnership with NASA come about? Yeah, so my graduate studies are in space resources. So this is sort of something like in, in my weird eccentric person that I am, that this is sort of like part of who I am sort of from the way back. And we began talking with NASA literally the very same month that we unveiled the 3D printed home three years ago because they had a what they call a Centennial Challenge open at the time for 3D printing habitats on Mars. And Centennial Challenges are the way that NASA explores public-private partnerships to advance and develop technologies that they're interested in. So we were an award winner and a finalist in that contest, and that opened the door for continued negotiations afterward. And it has just been an incredible, we are going back to the moon to stay. That's the word from NASA. And we're doing it this decade. The first woman is going to put boot prints on Mar- or on the moon, but we're not just planting flags. Like we are, we are actually going to begin establishing a permanent presence on other planetary bodies like the moon and ultimately Mars. If we want to do that, we can't carry everything with us anymore. Like that works if you're just going to go plant a flag and come home. You just bring, it's like a camping trip. But going to move somewhere is different than going camping somewhere. And we ran this sort of numbers on just bringing up the concrete that we used to print our first habitat uh, that was only 350 square feet would be like close to one and a half billion dollars just for a small little tiny structure. We're never going to have a moon base that way. What we're going to have to do is go up with a single system that can use the local resources, what NASA calls in-situ resource utilization, ISRU. We're going to have to learn to live off the land and build with what we find on the moon and Mars. And that way you have a single system that you transport one time, and then that single system can build launch and landing pads, roads, unpressurized structures, pressurized habitats without the reincurring cost of like, you know, I think it's like $15,000 per pound or kilogram to get something to the surface of the moon. Like this is, you know, we can't do that. We've got to learn to live off the land like, like humans always have had to do when they explored and expanded to new places. So once again, yo, how is the question? How do you print on other planets? How, you know, how far in, into the horizon, into outer space is this, is this goal? Yeah, so the, the two sort of, regardless of whether you're going to Mars or to the moon, the two sort of really common elements are ISRU, the like principle of living off the land. So you're not spending billions and billions and billions of dollars every time you want to build anything. And the second one is autonomy, right? We're going to really turn autonomy up to 11. We have to be able to control and operate these things without any humans necessarily on site and present. After that, it gets very different. The moon is the a very different place from Mars. Mars has an atmosphere. Mars has water. In some ways, Mars has more gravity. In some ways, Mars will be like much easier to build on than the moon. But we're going to the moon first. And so we get to jump in the deep end of the pool. With the moon, the, the biggest difference for us is like we can't use water-based concrete anymore. Number one, because if you had water on the moon, you would use it for life support or maybe rocket fuel, but you would not build out of it. It would be like building out of platinum on Earth. It was too expensive, too valuable. And so, if, and then even if you wanted to build out of water, it sublimates on the moon. It goes straight from an ice to a gas. 
And so there's no liquid water. And so we're going to have to take the local geology of the moon and mostly straight up melt it. Almost actually a lot more like a desktop printer where you're like melting the plastic. What are we going to use to melt the plastic? Our best thought so far is some version of the electromagnetic spectrum, probably lasers, i.e. visible light. But we're also experimenting with microwaves and infrared. And if all that fails, we'll just we'll straight up put it into a furnace and extrude it out of an extrudable furnace. We're exploring all those possibilities right now. We have some early winners. I don't want to say too much because like things could change. We're still early in the research phase, but we have been able to produce objects using lunar dust, simulated moon dust with all the methods I've just described. Like we have done it. We have printed things out of moon dust in the lab with infrared, with lasers, with microwaves, and just straight up melting it. So this does not defy the laws of physics and, and the materials is like quite, quite strong. So we're, we're really excited about this being a viable path forward. Incredible. And, and how might that building uh, help address um, housing issues back here on Earth? You know, I'm so happy you asked this question. It, it sort of assumes the best in the way you phrase it. I often get asked the question like, are you guys confused or distracted? Like, what's going on here? Here's the best way I can answer that question. It's almost like as a civilization, we need to level up to solve a lot of the problems that we have right now. We, I don't know what level we're at. Like maybe we're level seven, but the idea is like we need to become a level eight civilization and a level eight civilization, I just made that number up, is both spacefaring and able to solve homelessness, for instance. And I think the kind of civilization that learns to explore outer space and to live in outer space will be the kind of civilization that can is able to solve homelessness. And conversely, learning to build in space, all of those insights are already cross-pollinating back into our terrestrial technology, making it fast or making it more autonomous, making the material science better. Often you have to sort of advance in big paradigm shifting ways. You can't just sort of say like, oh, we're going to focus on homelessness. Oh, we're going to focus on a moon base. It's like, it's by expanding the aperture as wide as possible that you let in the maximum amount of innovation, the maximum amount of funding. And then you do all of that on behalf of humanity. And, and, and that's sort of what's going on. That I think these things go together. You know, it just may turn out that like the solution to some of our problems on earth are going to be found on the moon. Now, like, that's the bet. I may be wrong, but that's the bet we're placing. So back here on Earth, Jason, you know, using robots to build houses, uh, is this kind of the mark of a new industrial revolution? Yeah, I, I certainly hope so, right? We don't believe that we are just sort of a niche. This is a neat little thing to do sometimes for housing. We think this is a profoundly better way to do housing. It is faster. It is cheaper. It does offer more design freedom. It offers higher speed. It offers scalability. It offers sustainability, not just in the building performance, but when you 3D print, you print what you need to the drop and then you stop. And that's cool, not just because it rhymes, but because if you've ever been to a job site, there's often more waste than house. At least that's what it feels like. And so I'd, I think this is the toolkit of the builder of the future. And buildings are among like our most foundational human needs, right? Like food, water, shelter. And anytime you actually change a paradigm on one of those fundamental human needs, this doesn't happen very often, you know, like on the order of millennia, it, it has an impact. I think revolution is the right word. Living on the moon, crazy stuff, right? Later, we checked in with Fernando Porto and David Python from the Brazilian shoe company Cariuma to get a sense of what's going on with sustainable footwear these days. They talked about how they're not just going to stop at making the world's lowest carbon footprint sneaker, but instead focus on making the overall industry much more sustainable. Let's talk a little bit about future goals. You've talked about a priority being to make a majority of your products 100% vegan. What does it mean when we say a product is vegan, you know, versus sustainable? Or uh, Vegan would be like there's no component in anything that comes from animal source, no matter what, like uh, 
can have anything, even the glue or anything based on that, right? So right. I would say, interesting enough, like we had a goal to get to the end of this year with 50% of the products sold being vegan. We actually already achieved that last year, mm. right? So the, the vast majority of the shoes we sell are already 100% vegan. I think that's a very important thing that we're trying to get, but we cannot compromise. Mm -hmm. There are still few things related to performance that there's no vegan material that can achieve. That's why we're not 100%. But the one thing we do to get there, we test everything. Every single material you see out there, or there was an article about a, a new material made from that fruit or the other one or from mushroom or from any other possible source, we make sure we get a sample and we make a shoe out of that and we put it to test. You're obviously not the only company that's making shoes from some of these sustainable materials. You know, I've covered companies like On, Twisted X. There are a handful. Do you see yourselves as competitors of these other companies or, or are you kind of all in this together in making the industry more sustainable? Yeah, we completely see that we're in this together, especially when we see what's ahead a few years from now. We're in this to become a household name and not seen as competitors or people that are part of the same movement. And even to inspire new fashion entrepreneurs. Me and Fernando, we're personally mentors of other fashion entrepreneurs with the same purpose that we have. That's how we dedicate part of our personal time. And those are people that have inspired us as well. Take the own running guys. We completely admire them. I had the pleasure to visit them in Zurich. And we are big, big fans. And how can you convince the industry as a whole to become more circular? And do you really need the big guns to play, you know, the Nikes and the Adidas's to play a role? Growth for us is not a goal. It's proof. It's proof of where customer attention is. By launching the world's lowest carbon footprint uh, sneaker ever made and seeing our About Us page having a tremendous boost in traffic on the same week, for us, that's proof that it's not just about the silhouette. It's not just about the comfort. It's by people wanting to join a better brand, a better company with better values that they, they associate themselves with. So we, as Fernando mentioned, we said, oh, maybe we should start a company this way that we feel good about it and that we're proud of. Do you feel like you need the buy-in of some of the big sneaker brands in order for the entire industry to become more, more sustainable? If they cared, definitely would be faster. That's for sure. There's no doubt, right? The day Nike says like, oh, all the plastic I use is going to be recycled. They will solve a lot of problems. A lot of problems, right? If this becomes like a specification or something. So of course, the buying power and the volume changes everything fast. There's a sentence I heard someone saying, the villains are not going to become the heroes. In a way, the practices that the big guys were doing for the last decades is what inspired the customers to look for something different. Mm. So I don't see them taking a stance or putting themselves in a position to change the industry, unfortunately, because they could speed up a lot the process. But if it, this is not the case, there's a big opportunity for the new guys to steal market share from to grow, to get to the volume, as David was mentioned to you, mm -hmm. without them. And when we're talking about the gigantic brands out there, inspire them to change. Yes, but not in 2050, you know? That's our stake as well. What are you doing now? And it's not just about the environment. 
It's about the business partners you have. A very interesting conversation I'm having is with many skate shop owners, how they feel that they're being served. And that's a community of one, two, door mom and pop that play an enormous role in the community of skateboarding. They provide a wonderful service. Every skater knows which skate shop they, they went and bought their gear and how that person influenced their practice of the sport or the gear they chose. And we are really putting our brains to work here to make them serve better. But they have a big pain. It's not only on the environment, it's how to relate with all the people that have future brand. That's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to World Changing Ideas wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts.